Sisters. Today we are bringing you another bonus episode, this one on being white and Christian. Uh, You can't see it, but I am making quotation marks around the word white, and that's a great deal of what we're going to be unpacking. You can no doubt guess why we're taking up this topic right now. Uh, It is normal to begin these kind of conversations with a lot of disclaimers. I am not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, simply saying what follows is an attempt between dad and me simply to reflect on our experience of race in our own lives um, and what it means for us to have this description. scriptor of white about our persons. It is not an attempt to diagnose every problem, to utter the correct slogans, to repeat the uh, assured solutions. It's only an attempt to talk and to model what talk looks like. You would probably be helped um, in hearing this conversation if you've already heard some of our back episodes, which we're definitely presuming in the background of this one. Um, I particularly commend to you What is a Person? Faith to the Aid of Reason, both of the Two Kingdoms episodes, and the first two-thirds of Acts. There will be links to all of those in the show notes. So, Dad, it was actually something that uh, you wrote once that um, got me thinking in a deliberate way about what it means to be white. And I remember you're saying something to the effect of realizing that white meant not having your own history anymore as a white person, Um, obviously in a very different way from the way um, Black Americans and Native Americans have had their history taken away from them. So if you don't mind, I'm going to start by just talking through how I've come to think about that. And then I'd like you to weigh in uh, where, where this became a reality for you. How does that sound? Sounds good. Go ahead. Okay. So um, I've mentioned a couple times, I think, on our podcast that I've I've written a memoir about um, the first year that our family lived in Slovakia, my only year that was in the early 90s, hopefully um, to be published next year. And um, one of the things I discovered in writing this or rediscovered was how important it was to me as a young person to identify as a Slovak. I was very proud of being a Slovak. And then going to Slovakia was exciting because I was like going to the homeland or something. And a part of the ironic tale of my memoir is discovering that I was not in fact a Slovak at all. Um, and what I had to do with that self-perception. But um, since I've written the memoir and reflected more on that, I realized that another way of cons- Construing that search or that claim of Slovak identity for me in a young person was just the sheer inadequacy and insufficiency of white as a descriptor of who I was. I think I always sort of perceived whiteness as more like blankness, like to be a white person is just it's a big nothing. It's only in opposition to black. Um, And it it, it doesn't have any like meaningful tradition or history or specificity. Um, this really came through to me again recently, Dad. I was um, I read a book review of a, a cultural history of the very first um, settlers, uh, European settlers in North the North American region. It's called Albion Seed, and it is really fascinating because it describes not just for white cultures but for English cultures, um, basically the Puritans in New England, the Quakers in Pennsylvania, the um, landed gentry Anglicans in Virginia, and then the borderers, which are people from the English Scottish border who l- occupy what's um, in like Appalachia. 
And it was so interesting, Dad, because all four of these white English cultures were so radically different from each other. Um, just not, you'd never call them like white. It would not be a meaningful term to say what they all had in common. And the the book also suggests, or at least the review, the way um, their different cultures have passed in and become amalgamated into American culture today. But they're very much, in so many ways, at odds with each other, really hostile to each other. And so the fact that just those first four English white cultures could be so different from each other to say nothing of all the other so-called white people who have emigrated to the U.S. over time, um, how they have been different, how they have been hostile to each other. I mean, there's a hilarious story on Andrew's side of the family that his Swedish American great aunt married a Norwegian American and it was a scandal. <laughs> like we can't imagine now in the just everybody's white, you know, that that could ever be a big deal. But it really was then. So anyway, so I'm just saying is like, it, it occurs to me that part of this youthful obsession with Slovak identity was needing to be something more meaningful and more specific. I think it's also telling that I didn't seek or find this on mom's side of the family, which is predominantly German. I think that's probably because the immigration of the U.S. happened that much earlier and because German Americans had an added incentive to strip themselves of distinctive ethnic identity after two world wars made being a kraut not at all a, a popular thing to be. So I'm certainly not asking for like any kind of pity or sympathy about the ways in which white people have been stripped of their identity. But I think it seems to me what's so off-putting or unsatisfying about claiming or being white, again in quotes, uh, is that all that's left to it is some kind of toxic and unsatisfying combination of nationalism, um, because it's just Americanism. And um, I I'm really have grown to detest nationalism more and more, though I have to say more from studying um, 19th century European history than anything else. Um, and I think that's why by American, white Americans get so upset about critiques of American history, because I think in a way it's all they have left. Um, they don't have any other formative tradition. So it's a combination of nationalism on one side and basically consumerism on the other. Like to be a successful white American is to be proud to be an American and someone who buys a lot of stuff and knows who they are because of that. And that just, that's never been enough for me. So uh, yeah, so but I think it's very clear that um, where I am generationally in the Slovak line, I mean, that's the end of the line. <laughs> There's just this would not extend another generation. It's not really a useful place to find identity anymore. But then the question is, what's what's left? I don't want to be the generic nationalist consumer. I want something more meaningful than that. I would say in my case, I've no doubt found it really in the Lutheran tradition. Like in a way, Lutheranism is my new ethnicity. Um <laughs> and that's something that involves it involves more of an element of uh, mature and sober choice, even though I've inherited it. But I mean, even even to make a mature and sober choice is not usually what you do with your your ancestors, your tradition, your culture. You just have it and you live with it. So anyway, that's just kind of my opening reflection on on how I have consciously um, engaged with my so-called whiteness. Um, but obviously it, it comes from your line and your place and you're much closer to the source than I am. So um, why, don't, why don't you take over from here? 
Well, thanks, Sarah. Yeah, and it's interesting for me to listen to the account of your account from your own generational perspective. Uh, of course, that's a lot that I can connect with in there, but I think we should acknowledge that we're talking about this issue because of the scandalous uh, deaths of African Americans at the hands of the police, which has created such an uproar uh, and, and such widespread uh, uh, protests against uh, uh, this continuing legacy of the race-based slave system that accompanied the founding of the United States of America, a legacy that continues on uh, to the present day. And some of the most uh, outspoken protesters have been banding about terms like white privilege and white supremacy. And this, of course, is off-putting, if not offensive, to uh, good Christian people with white skin who do not think of themselves as racists or as prejudiced against people of darker skins. So it's a provocation, but I think it, it can be, it, not necessarily, but it can be a healthy provocation to cause us to reflect in the way you just uh, gave an example of, to reflect on uh, what it means to be an American, what it means to be a white person, and what it means to be as a Christian uh, who happens to be a white American. Uh, so that's kind of the, the zitzim leven, the situation in life that's provoking us to this uh, discussion. I've been thinking about this for many, many years. Um, I'd like to maybe a little bit later on talk about my own journey on these issues. But just to reinforce the point that you were making, to realize how recent the invention of whiteness has been, just imagine yourself back a century or maybe two into Europe. Try telling an Irishman and an Englishman that they're both white. Try telling a <laughs> yeah. Swedish and a Norwegian that they're both white. Try telling a French and a German or a German and a Polish that they're both white. A Slovak and a Hungarian, a Serb and a Croat, and I could go on and on and on. Um, all of those old tribal identities in Europe uh, were shed like a snake sheds its skin with the European immigration to the United States. This was, a, on the whole, for, for the immigrants that came from Europe, especially in the 19th century, this America was the land of opportunity, a golden place, a dream place, where they could leave behind the baggage uh, of their own feudal oppression. Most of them were peasants, or industrial workers highly exploited in the old European regimes. My grandfather emigrated to the United States in 1913. Basically, as a draft dodger, he sensed the winds of war. In, he want, did not want to be cannon fodder for the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So thank God for you and me, he emigrated and got out of there before he was chewed up in one of those terrible European wars. So coming to America 
You know, Teddy Roosevelt famously said there's no place for hyphenated Americans, Italian-Americans, German-Americans, French-Americans. You're just American. And that was the positive, uh, I think, development here. But what that meant was that the European immigrants melted, the famous image of the melting pot, melted into one big group of so-called white people. And as you mentioned, the only meaning of this classification by skin pigmentation was that you were not dark-skinned. And then there was a hierarchical value judgment assigned to this. To be white is to be superior to being black. And this was a powerful tool to keep poor whites poor and divided. Uh, After all, the slave system was competing with them for employment and paying uh, African Americans for their labor uh, would have raised the value of labor uh, across the board. So what happened was that the, the basic solidarity of poor and working class people was riven by the ideology of white supremacy, or that whites are superior to blacks. As the immigrants came to America, they internalized this culture, perhaps not even consciously, but they internalized it so that even the most down-and-out white person could say, at least I ain't one of them. And that was the psychological compensation for their difficult lives socially and economically as immigrants. So I think we need to know this history in order to understand where the very notion of whiteness came from and how unconsciously it was internalized as equivalent to being American and how it brought with this this injurious, invidious distinction from darker-skinned people. So that's my first uh, kind of response to what you've said And I just want to lift up how interesting it is that strategically, as you said, it breaks solidarity among poor and working class people to maintain these these ethnic and racial rifts between them. Yeah. So let's just take a minute to talk then about these terms, white privilege and white supremacy. I've already kind of explained what the notion of white supremacy simply means. And the notion of white privilege is that this legacy going back to the legally recognized and codified in the United States Constitution, race-based slave system, reconfirmed notoriously in the 1840s by the Dred Scott decision, was part of the origins of the United States. It's, it's in the DNA. And famously in the Lincoln-Douglas debate, Sarah, uh, Douglas uh, kept referring to what the the intention of the founding fathers, the original meaning of the Constitution, and he had the legal case on his side. It's right there. African descendant slaves count for three-fifths of a person to ensure that the southern plantation states would have at least a little bit more representation in the House and so forth and so on. But as a three-fifths of a person, they did not have legal rights. They were property that could be owned by slave masters and so forth. 
That's there. And in the debates, Douglas kept harping on that. Lincoln, uh, what you're advocating uh, is not in uh, conformity with the intention of the founding fathers. What Lincoln had to do was appeal over the head of the Constitution to the Declaration of Independence and the famous statement in it, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Words that Jefferson basically borrowed from the English philosopher John Locke. And Lincoln then had to say, before the legal constitution of the United States, the revolution made a moral covenant that was expressed in those words. And so the slave system was in deep contradiction to the moral covenant on which the true union was based. I think it's important, since you're talking through this American history here, for people to recognize that all histories are works in progress and that there's a big difference if you bias towards origin and if you bias or if you bias towards development. And I think a lot of the stronger language we're hearing now about America being, you know, corrupted at, at its its core or its origin is, is too simplistic. It's exactly human history is this dual history of, you know, good and evil and right and wrong trying to work themselves out and achieve clarity. And so the, the contradiction of the slave system is there, and it, it is morally awful, and it does stand in stark contradiction to what the Declaration of Independence says. The question is, is if you have to decide because something was bad at the beginning, it can never, ever get better. And if that's the case, there's no hope for any human person or history or culture at all, or if there is a possibility that it's precisely in the confrontation of the moral contradictions that actually something like a meaningful movement towards moral improvement can take place. And I say that advisedly, not like it's a simplistic thing at all, but there is a, I just want to point out there's a big difference between protological bias and emergent bias, and I, I tend towards the latter myself. Very good. I think that's, I think you're, it's well said. And I think there are some, uh, let's say, extremists who would think that the American experiment in democratic self-government is so fatally flawed that it must be re replaced by a, a genuine political revolution. I agree with you more on a developmental perspective, but here I would say, quoting John F. Kennedy, those who make peaceful change impossible, make violent change necessary. And I think what we've witnessed remarkably in these last number of weeks is the, uh, the protests in favor uh, of the slogan, not the group Black Lives Matter, uh, uh, we can get into that if we want to, uh, have been trying uh, to disassociate themselves from the violence of the looters and the uh, an chaos of the anarchists and so forth and so on. Um, and uh, I think that's an important recognition uh, that the line that extends from Lincoln and then all through the terrible deviation of Jim Crow and uh, segregation uh, and on to Martin Luther King Jr., and from there to today, that line of 
working for democratic change uh, is um, picking up on this. And this is where our theology has to come in, because I think part of the problem we have in, in our culture is that people don't recognize the theological roots of that statement in the Declaration about all being created equal and endowed by their creator. I was trying to explain where the notions of privilege and supremacy come from. And supremacy is an ideology that's been deployed to teach uh, the majority population that you're white, not black, and that accordingly you're superior. And even if you consciously reject that ideology of supremacy, that doesn't mean the ideology doesn't play a role in your culture, and that in innumerable soft and hard ways, people with white skin inherit a privilege that's based on the notion of white supremacy, even if they consciously disown it. So those are the concepts that people are trying to wrestle with right now in trying to concretely overcome a particular history and its legacy and move towards the theological affirmation, all are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain rights and dignities. Let me say this. Um, I grew up in a working-class mill town in central New Jersey, uh, Raritan by name. My father was the pastor there of a Slovak Lutheran church. And uh, almost all the men in, the, in that congregation were employed at an industrial facility called John's Mansville, which was making, uh, working with asbestos insulation and so forth. And I remember in my teen years how the men of the congregation suddenly get, getting sick with lung disease and dying prematurely. They all had asbestos, and of course that was pretty much hushed up in those days. But it was just striking that these working-class white men working in this plant were dying in their 40s. And then in my this little town, Raritan, we had three Catholic churches, an Irish Catholic church, an Italian Catholic church, and a Slovak Catholic church. Three different Catholic churches for three different ethnicities. And we had one Dutch Reformed church that went back to the revolution and before <laughs> in central New Jersey. So this was the working class, multi-European immigrant milieu in which I came of age. But in our school district, we were linked with a wealthy uh, suburban community called Bridgewater. This has become well known today because it's where President Trump has one of his golf clubs in Bridgewater. And so my high school experience was coming from this working class mill town, blue collar town. And because I was, you know, an intellectual and, a, and bookish and so forth, I kind of gravitated towards the smart kids from Bridgewater, but I couldn't go to their country club and I couldn't play, take golf lessons or go to the pool or the tennis courts on the country club. In fact, I, to make a buck, I carried two 40 pound packs of, of golf clubs around the course for rich guys as a caddy. 
So I really felt deeply this class division uh, in my growing up experience. And I, I think from those days, from the beginning of my life, I, I identified with the struggles of working class people. The first time I experienced this tension between white and black was after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, I was, uh, uh, I was admi very admiring of him. I said to my father, I mean, here's a guy who's actually talking about Christian principles in public life. Isn't that great? Oh, well, you know, a little bit. I'm not sure about him. But anyway, you know, the... Um, when the when the race riots occurred in 67 and 68, our little white working class community, there are all sorts of hotheads saying they're going to put up barricades. They better not march into here and all this kind of crazy stuff. Uh, but they were, you know, angry because they were being portrayed as uh, the Archie Bunkers, the deplorables, the racists who were standing in the way of black progress because they refused to integrate housing and so forth and so on. In fact, what I remember as a teenager is them being really angry that wealthy people in Boston could send their kids to private schools while they paid for lawyers to send poor white kids in buses across the city into black schools and black kids across the city into white schools in uh, an experiment, a social engineering experiment that really went bad, badly for both sides. Well, and that the rich people had no skin in the game. No, and the white people were their stu the, the working class people were their stooges once again. So, I mean, I, I'm speaking here autobiographically. That's how I perceived it in those days. I want to fast forward, you know, by the time I was married and an adult, my love for diversity and urban life was a big factor in, in bringing me to Union Theological Seminary for my graduate study. And uh, how I loved that life there. My first call was to an all-black congregation, Mount Zion Lutheran Church, on the corners of Convent and 145th Street in the center of Harlem. Uh, and then I pastored another diverse congregation in Woodside, Queens, St. Jacobus, for a year later on. So I was really attracted to that get out of this, this bland, blank whiteness that you talked about and get into relationships with diverse other kinds of people. But in, I have to honestly confess, in those days also, the palpable criminality that haunted New York City in the late 70s and early 80s really wore us down. You were a little girl. I don't know if you remember this, but I would take you to the park across from our apartment building at Grant's Tomb to go on the swings. And you're on the swings and I hear gunshots ringing out. That made me nervous. And so I said, come on, Sarah, let's go home. And you were just, you know, a little five, six-year-old skipping along, holding my hand. And there in front on the sidewalk down the street from the apartment building is a corpse bleeding out and the sirens and the cops pulling up. And I sheltered your eyes from it and got you into the building. I didn't want you to see it. 
you've told me this story before, but I, I have no memory of it. You have no memory of it. I didn't want you to have a memory of it. And I think that this is another factor here. It It's kind of a, a mistake, I think, to isolate police brutality as the problem. When the whole, all the institutions, education, economy, edu- uh, governance, everything is affected by this legacy, the white-black polarity and all that it means. And so, of course, in this kind of cultural legacy, policing is going to reflect that uh, racist bias uh, that's just in, that's in the culture that just is there until we become conscious of it and work on, on, on exercising it. Now, so we left New York City and I became a pastor in upstate New York. And this was another encounter with ethnicity because my congregation had only been organized in the 1920s by uh, German immigrants, actually refugees, fleeing from the post-war chaos in Germany, especially the economic chaos. And by various routes, some went to Brazil, some went to Nebraska, others uh, to New York City, and they discovered cheap farming land here in the foothills of the Catskill Mountains. And by various connections, three or four or five major families all came to this community and started dairy farming and cabbage farming. And I thought this was just fascinating, this history of theirs. And as I got to know the people, I researched it, collected a lot of material photographs, and I wrote a little history of the congregation. Now, I'm not German, and uh, but I admired these immigrants and what they had accomplished and how they wanted to honor their own history and not forget it by having me, commissioning me to write this uh, history of their congregation. And I think that's what white-skinned people in America are missing. They're missing their own histories, their own stories. They've exchanged their heritage for a mess of pottage, which you called consumerism and hyper-nationalism. Well, I could say other things about our years in Europe and discovering European tribalism and my years since in Virginia and coming to terms with the abiding legacy of the race-based slave system in through the Jim Crow era. Uh, Where my office sits at Roanoke College, I can look out the window and see a statue of a Confederate soldier on property that actually does not belong to Roanoke College. But it's a memorial to the uh, soldiers, Confederate soldiers who fell in the Civil War. But what I've learned in recent times, and I had noticed this inscription that it was erected in 1905 or 1908, So, you know, 40-some years after the end of the Civil War, the statue goes up. Why does it go up at this time? Well, this is at the height of segregation laws and Jim Crow and the reassertion of white supremacy in the southern ex-slaveholding areas. And so the anger of African-American people Uh, as they learn this history and what these statues represent as visible monuments of the reassertion of white supremacy, 
I think their anger at them uh, is far more understandable to us. Well, that's enough about my lifelong journey on these issues. You know, I just to touch on the Confederate soldier thing, you know, it's it's not immediately mourning the dead if it's erected 40 years later. But I think it, it presents another aspect of this problem of white American identity is what do you do if your ancestors are bad? And I think that is something that we have not had the right conversation about or I don't know, like if it needs to be like some kind of massive grief and family systems counseling for whites from the South who are stuck with this knowledge um, and and, you know, in a toxic way, try to justify and claim it and say, you know, my people aren't bad. It's really hard for any human being to think that everything they came from was evil. I have no idea how to solve it, but I think that's part of what's going on there is that since what little history is left to white Americans tends to concentrate in those from the South who are trying to claim the Confederacy as some distinctive identity, but it's so wrapped up with this unbelievably evil um, practice of the enslavement of Africans. Um, yeah. <laughs> Right. It is. I was just going to say, this is where the Christian gospel uh, really needs to come on the scene. Because according to Christian doctrine, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And none of our histories are pure. Uh, all, have, uh, all our righteousness is as a filthy rag, Paul says, right? And if we take Christian doctrine seriously, we have the grace uh, in Christ to face up to the truth about ourselves without denial and without self-justification. Now, of course, there are always vicious people who want to hammer you with the truth about yourself, want to oppress you, terrorize you, abuse you, and so forth. And there is a very real fear in white people, I think, of uh, black vengeance. And I think that's a, a thought that needs to be, you know, patiently, patiently um, uh, exercised uh, in the sense of removing a demon. You know, uh, that's what made King's movement so powerful, is that at the heart of it was the, the Christian doctrine of reconciliation, uh, which does not cover up the sins or of the past and their legacy, but confronts them and, and creates a creative tension with them. Uh, as King said again and again, no matter how much you hate us, we will love you and love you and love you until you see the, uh, the error of your ways and repent and reconciliation becomes possible. Now, I realize for a lot of black folks King's patient Christian way of love and reconciliation, beginning with Malcolm X, I might say, was hardly satisfactory. No more black suffering to redeem white souls, Malcolm X basically said. So, but it, that's, that's an option. But I think for us as theologians, what we really need to do is apply our theology of atonement, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation to these daunting issues. Who can face their own sin apart from the surpassing grace of forgiveness and reconciliation? No one can. Yeah, I just think it gets really hard when, 
I, I think the problem is that a lot of people hear that argument as leveling and failing to distinguish between genuine differences, let's say, on the, the horizontal plane of human history between somebody who was an unapologetic slaveholder, slave raper, slave seller, right. and somebody who... Um, you know, maybe just by happenstance lived in the North and not the South, but became morally invested in putting an end to slavery. It just seems, I think, very unsatisfactory to try to solve problems at this historical level by saying, but we've all all sinned. But on the other hand, you know, that's true. <laughs> we, have, we have all sinned. So that's why I... Uh, what I'm trying to grope towards here, and I don't think very successfully yet, is that whatever the solutions are, they can't be further stripping of all history, tradition, identity. I think um, even if those cannot be the the gods that any group of white people worship or any other group of people worship, they're, uh, I would call it what Bonhoeffer says is a penultimate good. And I don't think any good comes out of further taking away what has already been lost. I don't know if that made much sense. No, sure it does. And, it, of course, the alternative to whiteness is not more blankness. The alternative to whiteness is recovering our real histories, warts and all. And that means the good as well as the bad. It's all mixed together, you know, in a in an uncanny package. Uh, and uh, only God in his uh, just judgment can finally sort it all out. We can't. But we can certainly, for the sake of our own uh, salvation and the salvation of others, we can certainly begin the patient work of confession and uh, repentance and renewal, contrition uh, and reparation and so forth that, that goes along with this. Um, I don't think it's a matter of, of lo more losing more of our history. It's a matter of regaining a more truthful history. Yeah, yeah, I definitely resonate with that very strongly. Um, so uh, <laughs> there's so many directions to go with this. I'd like to maybe share now just one sort of representative anecdote of, now I'm specifically speaking of my engagement as a quote unquote, white person with a black person. Um, it seems much less ambiguous to say black or African American. And yet because of the aforementioned habit of slaveholder rape, um, actually most, I think, African Americans are not, uh, you know, pure that's a horrible term but you know they they have they have multiple ancestors themselves and that of course was one of the basis of Jim Crow laws is I what you had to be like only uh, one eighth or something and you qualified as black quote unquote so the, the even talking about that is is very messy um, but anyway I just I, I, I want to share this because it was how I became aware of what you referred to earlier as, as white privilege um so when I was a teaching assistant uh, when, during my graduate studies at Princeton Seminary, I had a, a really bright and wonderful um, black student who was charismatic in both senses of the term. And um, I became friends with him. And um, I don't remember exactly what 
prompted this in that particular moment, but Andrew and I invited him and his wife over for dinner. And, you know, we just said, I don't know, this is probably like an embarrassing white person thing to do. But I just said, can you please help us understand what it's like for you? You know, we we trusted them enough and and believe they trusted us enough that they could, you know, share openly with us. And uh, this young man had just very profound and devout faith. And so I guess I, maybe this is the point is I knew I could trust him as a Christian in order to speak to me honestly about race issues. And there were a a whole bunch of helpful things. But the one that is, oddly enough, stuck with me strongest is his wife said that when she went shopping, she always had to dress up and look really nice because if she didn't, a store detective would tail her. And I was floored because I didn't even know there was such a thing as a store detective. And I had certainly never been tailed by one, no matter how schlubby I was dressed. And I, that, you know, and I, I think that's precisely white privilege. It doesn't have to be like, I don't get lynched, you know, on that massive scale of violence. But simply, you know, a total stranger in a retail setting decides that I'm trustworthy because of the color of my skin, not knowing anything about the interesting specificity of my history or my Slovak or German or Danish ancestors or anything. None of that matters. All that matters is that I look trustworthy, even dressed like a slob. And she didn't because she had black skin. And uh, that was that was really a stunning revelation to me. I later went to this young man's ordination at this um, massive uh, neo-Pentecostal congregation in a, a remodeled warehouse. They had like these flat screen TVs, screen, like screens hanging from the ceiling. And all the ushers were dressed in tuxedos and showed you to your seat and they packed you in. There were probably about 2,000 people there, only 20 of them white and the rest of them black. Um, I don't think since I I was a very little child. Was I ever in? I, I actually, Dad, one of my earliest memories was your Harlem congregation. And I remember being one of three, mom, dad, and me, uh, white people in a black <laughs> environment. So I don't think I'd been in such a situation since then. And it was it was my first experience with Pentecostalism, too. And it was, you know, very loud and exciting. It broke down into a dance party at one point. It was, it was uh, you know, um, more fun than uh, uh, your German congregation in upstate New York. But what I remember, again, most distinctly about it as a a racial experience is that I was seeing black people with their guard down and I had never known that I had always seen black people with their guard up. Again, because it was universal. There was no way of my knowing that even when I had, you know, good friendly relationships with other blacks, with with, with black people, like their guard was up. And I was seeing it when they could just be themselves and be free. And it was just a unmistakable change from from the public reality. Um, so, I, I, you know, there I guess what I, I just want to say is I'm I'm don't think self-flagellating is particularly um helpful advance in addressing this problem on the side of of white people and again as we've tried to say so-called white history is complex it has a lot of micro histories and subcultures that have been concealed and erased again differently from the way it has for for other racial groups but i think it is really important as a, a 
whether you like it or not, white person, just to see that the the privilege is put on you, whether you like it or not. And at the same time, the privilege that is real that you get is also entailed in stripping you of your own history and making you more susceptible, I think, to the nationalism and consumerism that's replaced meaningful, formative tradition in our country. Yeah, very well said. I think that's exactly right. And uh, we're really at a kind of a cultural crossroads here, um, I think, uh, in many ways in the United States. These are very, very uh, uh, times pregnant with meaning, and the meaning can be good or evil. It can go either way. I'm not sure what's going to happen in this country. But I would like to mention uh, two things that as a theologian I learned from two well-known uh black teachers, uh, Cornell West and James Cohn. Uh, when I was a student at Union, I was, uh, for a time, I was very close to James Cohn. I was his teaching assistant. And uh, Cornell West uh, was my f- tutor in philosophy. Both of them served on my dissertation committee. And uh, Cornell West wrote a very influential influential book called Race Matters, in which he was simply trying to point out all the subtle phenomena of this white privilege thing. He opens the book talking about him waiting and waiting on a corner in Manhattan for a taxi uh, and not being able to hail one because of the color of his skin. And that's just the, the, the innumerable small indignities uh, that are forced upon black people in, in, in a culture of white privilege again and again and again. But what was really striking about Cornell's book, Race Matters, is the emphasis he put in it on culture. And he said, what a false antagonism there is between conservatives saying it's character that counts, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and uh, liberals saying it's uh, social oppression that counts, Until you change society, people are going to act like animals because they're treated like animals. And Cornell basically said, a pox on both your houses. Uh, The key critical work has to take place on the pre-political level of culture. And this is precisely where the churches are located. The churches in America, the churches are, are, are trying to enter into the political realm, left and right, uh, and they're, they're um, ineffective and part of the polarization. The real work of the church is on, is on the pre-political work of the culture. And here, it's not a matter of lily-white Lutheran congregations trying to sheep-steal a couple of black-skinned people in order to fulfill a quota. It's far more a matter of serious Christian congregations looking across the class and racial divides in their communities and forging practical connections and alliances. Uh, way back, I was saying years ago, instead of this false solution of a quota system, which by the way, in 30-plus years has scarcely moved the needle at all. Why didn't our denomination simply pursue a strong ecumenical relationship with a historic black church, like the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church, 
that would have been a, a relationship in which was not predicated on sheep stealing, but instead on uh, inter-churchly relations, cooperation, common mission, and so forth, and so on. And I think that that, if you really want uh, white people to overcome this idol, this this superficial identity of being white, if you really want them to learn diversity, you've got to get folks into uh, down on the ground interactions on the level of culture, which that's where culture is changed through communication and relationship building on that level. That's what I learned from Cornell West. Can I add just a quick footnote to that? Sure. I can. think also if if people want to diversify racially and ethnically their congregations, and I'm still like you, I'm a little concerned about that being the primary goal because I think it's more about removing embarrassment and shame, and not yeah, to mention yeah. fa- failing to recognize again the diversity of so-called white people who uh, all happen historically to have come by and large from Northern Europe. Uh, that wasn't their fault. They didn't know that they were white back in Europe. But if you actually really want to diversify, you have to lead with the gospel. It has to be not about, like you said, tokens or or improving a statistic out of shame, but actually looking to the people who don't look like you, who have not heard the gospel in your neighborhood and actually leading with the gospel. That's how the real transformation happens. And and look at look at the examples in our culture where we hear the gospel publicly proclaimed that way. After this is the fifth anniversary of Dylan Roof's murder of uh, uh, of African Americans at the Mother Church in Charleston, South mm. Carolina, right? right? And how how blown away I was watching those uh, survivors. Uh, on the television, telling Dylan Roof, uh, I forgive you. With all the pain and grief and sorrow of their loss, I forgive you. That was an amazing witness, just like the Mennonites made that witness after that murderer attacked their schoolhouse and killed their children when they spoke up publicly with the word of forgiveness. Now, of course, the Malcolm X types will you know, get up on their heels and say, no more black suffering to redeem white souls or something like that. But we're not talking here simply black and white. We're talking about the power of the gospel to break down barriers. And that's what we have to lead with. And the gospel is not a political principle. The gospel is actually the gospel. And so I think that there's an appropriate caution about expecting forgiveness as a political habit. That's not the, the, the politics is about justice, not about forgiveness, but in a, for society not to become, um, a total vengeance-based society. Like you said, you need the pre-political churches who teach the principle of forgiveness because of Jesus Christ, not because of a political mandate to forgive. And, you know, justice becomes fanaticism if it's not tempered by mercy, not tempered by the ultimate word of forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, I think an awful lot of guilty white people are scared to death of black vengeance. And they should be. Because the history of crimes against black people, uh, surely if there was a strict reckoning, my heavens. Jefferson said, 
at one point, the slave owner Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, wrote in his notebooks, I tremble to think that there is a righteous God. Hmm. Yeah. So, yes, even for justice to be proximate and rough and and moving forward, it's got to be, finally it has to be tempered by mercy, reconciliation, and forgiveness, I would say. We see in the scriptures of Israel that the cycle is the oppressed becomes the oppressor and the oppressor becomes the oppressed and the cycle goes on and on and on unless something like the gospel or the prophetic word comes and interrupts it. Otherwise, it's just going to be a flipping, uh, not of the reality of oppressor and oppressed, just who happens to occupy what position at any given time. Yeah, I want to maybe finish up with what I learned from James Cone on these yeah, yeah. issues, because uh, uh, I did kind of ha- break away from him uh, at, at some point, and that's not relevant here because it doesn't concern these kinds of issues. Uh, but what I did learn from him was every time he wrote it, read a student paper of mine or commented on my work, he would just, you know, scrunch up his face and says, who are you talking to? What is your audience? And this, you know, challenge really flummoxed me. And I said, well, I'm writing for everyone. Anyone who wants to read what I've written, I'm writing for everybody. And he said, that's crazy. You have an audience in your mind that you're responding to. Come clean with it. Stop pretending to be a universal person speaking to universal people. That's the essence of whiteness. That's what he was claiming, that that false sense of universality, that sense of cosmopolitan elites, that we uh, have discovered the way of the future, it belongs to us. You know, that's psychologically whiteness, whether you're white-skinned or not, that sense that I am the everyman uh, and no one in particular. And Cone drove that lesson in on me you know, pretty harshly sometimes, and in the, I see now in the uh, hindsight, in the in the light, the bright light of history, looking back on my life, that's what actually gave me permission. Me personally gave me permission to become a specific, concrete Lutheran theologian. You know, with uh, reflecting my own history, my own experiences in life my own interest in my ancestry, which led to our sojourn to Slovakia, and so forth and so on. So I guess in honor of James Cohn, I would simply like to make a proposal to all our white listeners out there. Instead of calling yourself a white person, why don't you start, just like we call black people now, African Americans, why don't you call yourself a Euro-American? in precise analogy to African-Americans. That way it would be a small step in owning up to your own historical particularity. Yeah. And if you're some more complex amalgamation, claim all of it. Yeah, claim all of it. Right. But predominantly in the United States, the white-skinned people come from Europe. But there might be others, of course. And But I'm, I'm perfectly happy with the Latino, Latina, the other designations for different uh, identities. Yeah, that, of course, uh, 
points out the fact that, as usual, our conversation is really focused on on white and black because that's where the greatest tensions exist. But um, as usual, the Latino and various um, Asian uh, groupings have just been overlooked as they always are. And though um, I think we're going to wrap up now, um, I would just point out that I have a Latino son and I live now in Asia as a, a racial minority among a 98.5% Japanese culture. So there is is much more yeah. to, uh, even in my own life, to talk about, um, about a broader spectrum of racial engagements uh, it's again as you said earlier it's it's the immediate news that's making has made us focus particularly on white and black dad i just want to as we as we finish up now i want to pick up exactly on on that point um that you said you learned from cone about being a specific person and not a universal person as i've been reflecting on this i realized it was it was easy for me to see why i could never identify with um extreme American right-wing politics because the way I, I put it in my mind was that it asserts a monoculture that American is white or American is Anglo. That annoys me because we are not Anglo, uh, Anglophone in language, but not Anglo in ethnicity at all. Uh, I remember one time actually being called an Anglo by a, 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 gra- a fellow graduate student who was a Latino and I'm being like, what? That's <laughs> and sort of realizing how how irritating it is to be misattributed um, in that respect, um, but so I mean it was just always clear to me that 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 right wing extreme right wing nationalistic story that America is white or of European descent only you know I could I could never go there because of its monoculture presuppositions. Uh, but I realize what seems to be coming more clear to me is that the extreme left has its own monoculture assertions that, again, all white people are just white, you know, and a, a blackness is a block identity, too. And it seems to me, I mean, like, I thought the whole point of, like, the civil rights movement and and relatedly the women's rights movement was to de-essentialize race and sex and allow people to again as we talked in our our um episodes uh, about what is a person you you certainly have a nature there's there's a givenness about you including your your skin color and your sex but you are primarily a person that is how you actually exist in the world and it, it seems to me that the uh, a liberal extreme left is re-essentializing and denying personhood and um in a i don't know a a new desire for race warfare. warfare. I, I don't really understand what's going on. It seems to me an abject betrayal of what um, what genuine liberalism, both in the classic sense and the progressive sense, are supposed to be about. So I, I guess my my uh, the way I would interpret this theologically is what I learned from the Book of Acts from Paul's conflicts with the so-called Judaizers, not a great term, unfortunately, you know, and um, from mission studies is that the there was never a privileged language or a privileged culture or a privileged race or nation uh, in the church, that the miracle of Pentecost, it actually starts with Jews who are divided among themselves because of their their migration patterns and their different languages. And, and then the Holy Spirit draws in 
uh, uh, more marginal Jewish communities. And then it brings in Gentiles. And then it turns out there's all different kinds of Gentiles. And you have to go to them one by one and work them out. But there is never a there's not a holy language in Christianity. There is not a primal culture that is correct and everything um, derivatively is is inferior by comparison to. So I think this refusal of a monoculture is actually, oddly, that is the culture of Christianity, is to not be a, mo- a monoculture in the, the horizontal human sense. The If there's any culture, it's built around something like scripture and sacraments. And, um, and so my encouragement, therefore, to Christians in America, white, black, Latino, Asian, Native American, or any other category you fall into, is that as a penultimate good, invest in being your own specific culture, tradition, history, ancestry, um, so as not to be simply a pawn of nationalism and consumerism, or monoculture extremists of the right or left, and to hold that under the cross and under the Holy Spirit, again, not as the highest good, but as a penultimate gift of creation that needs constantly to be redeemed and sanctified so as not to become a toxic God. Yeah, very well said, very well said. And that's kind of negotiating the problem, the theological problem of the idol, isn't it? The idol, uh, Paul says, we know an idol has no real existence. Uh, That is to say, the idol is real precisely as a fraud. It exists as a fraud, as, as something that's not true. And yet, precisely as a fraud, with its pretension of being something real and true, it works profound injuries. So you're always, when you're dealing with an idol, like I have argued today, that whiteness is that kind of an idol. It has no real existence. It's a fraudulent existence. It exists only in the minds of people, and there it does a great deal of injury, as Martin Luther King explained. Racism gives white people a false sense of superiority, and it gives black people a false sense of inferiority. Both internalize the ideology, the idol, and in diverse ways, but it damages the souls, King said, of both people this way. And so the Christian gospel is, for us white Christians, is that it frees us from the need to be white. We don't have to be white anymore. We can just be who we actually are, which is, for us white-skinned people, predominantly Euro-Americans who have, have to come to terms and overcome a certain kind of history in order to make a new and better history. Right. And I think it gives us freedom to acknowledge our ancestors, to repent for them, and to forgive them, maybe, and invite forgiveness of them, Um, not dissociating ourselves from them because we've inherited their gifts as much as we've inherited their sins, but to to move forward... um, you know, claiming claiming the truth about ourselves and our past, but also again, uh, moving forward into the you know the the kingdom of God as as the Holy Spirit draws us on. I actually think we could learn a lot from our German, our, our Christian friends in Germany, because the past generation and a half in Germany has had to go through precisely such a process as it has come to terms with the legacy of Nazism. 
right, right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, any, uh, any final thoughts? Uh, you know, um, I've spoken passionately about this uh, and spontaneously, so I hope I haven't offended anyone. I hope instead I've challenged uh, listeners to think seriously about the things we've said. Again, as Sarah, as you said, not in order to flagellate ourselves. That's pointless. Nothing good comes out of guilt, doing things out of guilt. But a lot of good comes out of genuine contrition, repentance, and faith in the forgiveness of sins. In that context, we can deal even with the daunting problem uh, problems in America today of, uh, of the pernicious legacy of a race-based slave system. Yeah. And I guess I would say the route to repentance is speaking as truthfully as you know how. So it's really important for you, wherever you are, whatever legacy of history or race that you have, just try to examine the truth as you have experienced it and not as you are told to feel it, not as a slogan demands that you say it, um, you know, that a, any anyone's platform demands that you fall in without any, any critical thoughts. Start with just truthfulness at home. Speak it as best you can. Be open to, you know, challenges and reinterpretations that are given in good faith. And I think that's the only way to continue the process of healing all the all the evils in our own immediate American past. Amen, sister. <laughs> all right. Well, yes, amen. And um, yes, uh, thank you for, for listening, um, everybody, on this, this bonus one. Of course, we'd be very happy to hear from you and um, yeah, hope to take up, continue to take up um, essential issues as they arise.